What we feed grows. What we grow, we will love. And what we love, we will protect. And that's actually a strategy. That's not just a, you know, a nice thing to think about. It's a strategy. Welcome to Economics for Emancipation, a podcast about how we can move towards justice by transforming our relationships to each other, to our environment, and to the systems and structures that make our world go round. Each episode in this series features two guests in conversation with each other about the daily struggles, strategic considerations, and huge opportunities that come with the work of building a better world for all of us, with justice as our North Star. I am your host, Amethyst Carey, and I'm here to learn and listen with you. I'll be sharing context, definitions, and some of my reflections on the key themes raised by our brilliant guests. Themes like shared governance and economic democracy. And if you don't know what these terms mean, you're in the right place. We're here to figure them out together. Here's a few ways you can engage with us while listening. If you like what you hear in this episode, please rate us five stars on whatever platform you're using to listen and leave a review. Let us know what you think on Instagram and Twitter by using the tag, hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number. If social media isn't for you, or if you're just tired of it like me, you can share your thoughts by sending an email to podcast at economicdemocracy.us. And as always, all of this information and details about today's featured interviewees can be found in our show notes. Okay, let's get into it. In this episode, we hear from Elena Latona and Gopal Dianeni, who discuss what the pandemic has taught us about organizing in our communities and how we move away from charity towards solidarity, both locally and internationally. Elena Latona is an immigrant from El Salvador who has dedicated the many years she spent in the U.S. to the work of justice. For the past six years, she was the executive director of Neighbor to Neighbor Massachusetts, a statewide membership organization building the power of people of color, immigrants, women, and the working class. Elena is a board member of the Center for Economic Democracy. Gopal Dianeni lives in Oakland, California on unceded Ohlone territories. He is a member of the Planning Committee for Movement Generation, Justice and Ecology Project, and serves on the board of several organizations, including the Working World and the Action Group on Erosion, Technology, and Corporate Concentration. Gopal is a fellow at the Center for Economic Democracy. Movement Generation, MG for short, is well known within climate and economic justice movements for the Just Transition Strategy Framework. It's a powerful framework that I want to share a little bit more about here. The Just Transition Framework grew out of organizing by environmental justice groups and labor movements, working to bring together their analyses on the way that capitalism works. The Just Transition Framework offers a compelling vision and strategy to shift away from our current economic system. Here's Movement Generation's articulation of what a just transition actually means. After centuries of global plunder, the planet will no longer sustain the industrial economy without massive ecological and economic disruption. Transition is inevitable. Justice is not. A just transition is the process of getting from where we are to where we need to be by transforming the systems of economy and governance. For example, a just transition involves shifting from dirty energy to energy democracy, from funding highways to expanding public transit, from incinerators and landfills to zero waste, from industrial food systems to food sovereignty, 
from gentrification to community land rights, and from rampant development to ecosystem restoration. Workers and communities impacted first and worst must lead the transition to ensure that it is just. In other words, a just transition requires moving from a globalized capitalist industrial economy to many local living and participatory economies that provide well-being for all. If you're hearing this for the first time, it's a mouthful. It's a lot to digest. So we've included more information about all of the organizations and terms I just mentioned in our show notes. Elena and Gopal also do an incredible job of breaking down the Just Transition framework in the conversation that follows. With that said, I'll go ahead and turn it over to them. Hello, Gopal. How are you? Hey, Maria Elena. It's so good to see you, um, even virtually, although I wish I was actually in person with you. And I'm really excited to be able to have a deep dive conversation with you a little bit today. So really excited to be here. Yeah, me too. And and I also feel very blessed, by the way, because as you know, the world over, we're going through this pandemic that is certainly demonstrated a systems-wide failure. And at Neighbor to Neighbor, we have been thinking quite a bit about the time that we spent together with you last August when you came and led a retreat to introduce us and uh, share with us, you know, the wisdom and the knowledge of one of the most hopeful visions for our future uh, called Just Transition. And one of the things that we remember is the very imaginative, out-of-the-box way that you talked about the economy. Yeah, I had a such a wonderful time um, with you all. And, and yeah, I think one thing that's really important for me and at Movement Generation, we kind of try to remind everybody that despite what we're taught, the economy is not some, does not have to be this um, excessively complicated notion of something that most of us can't understand and can't get a hold of. And in fact, it's really important to remember that there isn't just one economy, that economy literally means management of home and that our ability to take responsibility agency for and to actually engage in the daily practice of self-governance around economy, around the management of home is really important. I think the dominant extractive economy that put us in the place of this pandemic, its precariousness is on full display right now. It also makes me think just really quickly about the word pandemic itself, which, you know, if we're going to break down that word, it literally just means all people, pan meaning all and demos meaning people. And I just want to name that demos, it, the notion of people is itself a very political word, right? We all intuitively understand that human beings are people, but we live in an economy in which corporations are people. And we live in an economy in which trees are not people. And we could just as easily, in that sense that the notion of personhood is very political, that we should be extending and imagining, expanding through our interventions, the notion of personhood to include all of life around us and contracting the definition of personhood to exclude corporations. And so I would also suggest that as we fight to reclaim the meaning of economy, we should also fight to reclaim the meaning of demos or people. 
I love that, Gopal. And uh, going back a bit on the economy, the way that normally people think about the economy, which, as you say, is not only kind of complex, that makes us feel like we can't understand it, but it's also incredibly narrow. Not only are you so right in saying that it doesn't include nature, the trees, the animals, water, right? But it kind of Mm -hmm. does at the same time because somebody's profiting out of those things. And the economy is understood as basically jobs and the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. Like we measure it by the number of unemployed, by the number of uh, jobs that we're producing and by how well the stock market is doing. And, And I remember having conversations with my father who still lives in El Salvador prior to the situation and saying, so I hear that the economy is doing really well, it's booming in the United States. And I would say to that, no way. They're just looking at two measures, two or three measures, but nobody's actually talking about all the things that we need as people to lead thriving lives, you know, like our healthcare, the kind of food we are eating, you know, so many, many, many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I really, I really like how you're um, lifting up the sort of very narrow definitions and the way in which we're quote unquote trained or or conditioned to think that like the end of every newscast ends with whether the Dow Jones industrial average is up or down and that that's supposed to tell us something about the economy. It's like most people understand in this moment that the economy sucks. And at the same time, so since the pandemic started, Jeff Bezos made more money from January to today than the entire gross domestic product the entire economy of Honduras. He made over $25 billion just during the pandemic alone. So yeah, the rich are making money hand over fist while we're seeing the vast majority of people struggling to get by. So, um, and if that's the sign of a booming economy, then we have a deep problem. And so that Mm -hmm. kind of gets me a little bit on the governance piece, like who is defining and making these decisions. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what we mean by governance as opposed to government. I think we often conflate the two and, um, you know, government is a particular form of governance and a particular set of structures of governance. But to govern literally just means to steer and to steer what the economy and towards what and those are those are open questions. Towards what are we interested in steering the economy? If we are interested in steering the economy towards um, health and well-being and and belonging and care and compassion, then we will use different measures to evaluate it, mm-hmm. and we'll have different structures to motivate it. Yeah, and and also you know when I think about governance, I think about who is making those decisions. And what I find is super frustrating, harmful, is that going back to demos, going back to people, let alone the animals or the trees, we are not the ones making the decisions about the economy. Who decides for us what we're going to be consuming, what is considered important to own, what kind of food we're consuming? It's not us, right? And we don't even decide what happens to the dollars that we pay in taxes. So there's nothing democratic about the way that our current system, known as capitalism, runs. Nothing democratic about it. 
So yeah, when I think, absolutely. yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm fond of quoting uh, a Supreme Court Justice, Louis Brandeis, who, um, who said, you can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy, but you cannot have both. That used to be the, a voice you could have on the Supreme Court of the United States, although of course you know not very powerful um, in terms of in terms of policy or decisions. But it's absolutely true. You cannot actually have without economic democracy, meaning people having control over the decisions that affect their daily lives and how they get their needs met. You'll never have political democracy. We can go through a sort of periodic pretense of of abdicating responsibility for the decisions that affect our daily lives by empowering somebody else to to do it for us, but it doesn't change the fact that the privileged demos, the privileged peoples, the privileged persons are actually corporations and the economy will always serve them until we actually define a new purpose. Phew, and we are off to an incredible start. I am really grappling with Gopal's assertion that without economic democracy, we will never have political democracy. That's a strong statement. To be clear, it's one that I agree with. (laughs) But I'm sitting with the implications of what that means for our political and electoral work. When we recognize that corporations concentrate the world's capital and resources into their hands, and those corporations are owned and run by a wealthy few who have bought governing control, and made it extremely difficult for anybody to challenge or threaten their power. And we know capitalism doesn't make space for most regular people to actually practice and participate in government. How can we keep pretending that the democracy we have right now is actual democracy? I would argue that it's uh, not actually democracy. (laughs) And if real democracy is what we want, then we need strategies that take economic power and influence into account. What do you think? What's your understanding of the relationship between economic power and political power? How does that relationship show up in your community or work? Please write in and let me know. I want to know what you think. Our email is podcast at economicdemocracy.us. In the next segment, Elena and Gopal share reflections on a neighbor-to-neighbor retreat they had in August. Those reflections lead into a conversation about just transition, organizing differently, and how to genuinely move with love at the center. One of the things that I was really excited about when we got together in August and I got to meet with the staff and member leaders is the way in which you all are doing something that I think is a really important part of a vision of Just Transition, which is navigating the constraints of the existing structures while at the same time working to advance a larger vision. And in this moment, um, I'm really interested in hearing you reflect on what you all have been learning about about the struggles there, about what are the hardest contradictions to navigate right now? What are the new opportunities that you see emerging for your organizing? So I think there's nothing like just the living practice of trying to figure this out and applying it to our organizing. And I know you've been doing that for a long time. Yeah, thank you, Gopal. I think uh, for us at Neighbor to Neighbor, it has been a journey, you know, this past maybe five, six years of weaning ourselves out of this more traditional way of uh, organizing for big policy changes, okay? What that has meant is that we have moved slowly away from the kind of organizing that is mechanical in nature, transactional in nature, 
where you're going to the doors and you have a very particular ask of people and uh, you move on to the next door. And I saw when I came into Neighbor to Neighbor that that was not transformative, that it was not just about changing big systems, but it was about changing how we as communities saw ourselves, acted for ourselves, made decisions for ourselves, and that if we were not ourselves, you know, taking ownership and growing in our leadership, we would be stuck forever and ever in that kind of organizing where other bigger allies, bigger advocates were designing the campaigns and then just plugging people like us into the campaign tactics. So it has been a journey. And for me, it has been primarily a journey of love in the fullness of what love means, meaning it can be hard, right? It can be hard at times. It can hurt. It can challenge you. But there's this unshaking commitment to people and having faith in our communities. We have been also awakening to the fact that government is not going to be here to save us right? Like, yeah, they have a responsibility to us. And yes, we can continue working on the policy campaigns, but the policy wins are always going to be insufficient and very narrow. They're going to take a long time. They're going to go through a bureaucratic process to get implemented where a lot of people are going to be left out. They're going to always be, not always, but at least for the time being, and I don't know how long, are going to be laden with racism, xenophobia, classism, sexism. And so we need to find a different way. And we are finding with the uh, crisis that we're all living throughout the world, opportunities. We have been walking this journey long enough together that the moment actually has been strengthening us in many ways because uh, it has been so fundamentally about building the kinds of heart-to-heart connections, human connections, where you are seen and you are heard to the extent that you can be vulnerable with each other, right? Like we're there. We have done so many things with each other in over the past uh, few years that we can go there with each other, right? And be vulnerable. Yeah, I, I, I want to just reflect that um, one of the things that I experienced when I came to, to Boston to work with you all at, at um, Neighbor to Neighbor for, for that short time was actually the strength of relationships, the caring, the, the humor, the heart, the deeply authentic nature of your relationships with each other, the very family style approach that you had, which for me was very much like, is feels like MG as well. Mm-hmm. And I think... What's important is in these moments that test us, the the patterns of practice in our relationships that we have been cultivating are what will come forward that we will lean on. And so if 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 for the last five or ten or whatever many years we've been, you know, practicing deeply hierarchical and um, and patriarchal or 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 I would argue fraternal relationships. 
if we practice those, if that's what we depend on to get our work done, then that is what will rise to the surface in moments of stress. If what, if what we lean on is anger and, and hate versus, versus love and caring, that's what will rise to the surface. But as you pointed out, if, if actually at the center of our work is love and caring and belonging and, and privileging relationships over simply outcomes or transactions, then those things will rise to the surface in this moment. And I think the quiet revolution that we're seeing is that is what's rising to the moment in most people's lives is right. this actual caring concern for their neighbor. Like this is no better time to have an organization called Neighbor to Neighbor than now when people are actually most concerned about those right around them and how they can look after each other as a way of taking care of themselves, as a way of giving mm -hmm. themselves meaning in this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the name of organization, by the way, Neighbor to Neighbor. So listen, uh, that uh, your comments take me to one of the questions I have for us. And that is that one of the responses that we're seeing throughout the country, maybe the world, is this thing we call mutual aid. And of course, with Neighbor to Neighbor, we are engaged in mutual aid efforts particularly in Western Massachusetts. And lo and behold, we have been witnessing the patterns, right? The patterns that we have carried for generations around racism and classism, where the Western part of the state has a upper valley. I don't put it in quotes because that's the name. That's the upper valley. And it has the lower valley. And you don't need a big imagination to guess who lives where. But the Upper Valley has been behaving in ways that control the Lower Valley, where they want to have a say on how their money is being spent, to who it goes to, where they are wanting to keep control on the information being collected by the people that are benefiting from the mutual aid. And so you have a neighborhood neighbor in the middle right? Because we were the ones that actually established the um, infrastructure so that people could connect with each other online. And we're not giving a place at the table for decision-making. And we're denied, you know, access to the contact information because we wanted to um, use that information, you know, to follow up and organize. So, you know, that created a very interesting conversation among us as staff, as you can imagine. And one of the questions that I posed the staff was the uh, question that one of the other fellows uh, had for us when the fellows did a beautiful forum. And the question is, what would the world look like if black and brown folk were truly loved? And so that has helped our organizers start shifting that dynamic and taking more control, saying to the Upper Valley, you may have the resources, but we need to learn how to move away from charity, right? Just straight charity to real solidarity, right? And so figuring out now for the lower valley, how to actually create those relationships of solidarity. We would love to hear from you some ideas for us to continue moving what's being mutual aid between an upper and a lower valley that is more charity model-wise to a lower valley solidarity network that is among truly the people that live in those neighborhoods. 
Okay, well, I'm not sure I have <laughs> enormous um, insight to offer, partly because, you know, all organizing is local and the conditions are obviously very much about um, what's in place. And also, we're all navigating the same challenges, you know? It's like, first of all, I would just start with this. We do have to be careful in this moment that the concept of mutual aid does not get degraded into charity. And I think many of us have noticed um, that the term mutual aid is gaining traction um, around the country and around the world as a way of of describing getting involved in supporting people, the sort of way of talking about getting involved in your community. But the deeper meaning of mutual aid about recognizing that everybody has something to give and everybody has needs that we can meet together. Together and that we are actually in a deeper solidarity of shared um, shared need, shared struggle, shared challenges, is different than simply saying a mutual aid effort is a non-governmental, self-organized charity operation. Um, that's not mutual aid. Yeah, you know, the fact that we need that or that that's emerging as a response to the total failure of the exceedingly well-funded charity industrial complex and the exceedingly poor response from government, notwithstanding, I think, you know, an important component of mutual aid is actually valuing what everybody has to give as well as making sure that people's needs are getting met. And I don't, I think it's really hard to do that sort of up down mutual aid until there's solidarity inside the community, um, as, right. you, as you're naming. Right. So this is where I want to go next because that's a key challenge. Okay. And I, mm-hmm. because I have some ideas. Okay. And I'm finding that implementing those ideas, what's really getting in the way is that at this moment of physical distancing, mm. we're not able to actually build deep with people because uh, the solidarity like projects that come to mind require those kinds of bonds of trust and respect, but I mean deep trust so they can form those intentional communities that you were describing. Mm Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, here's the the challenge is like, in order to actually be prepared to respond to this moment, we needed to be organizing for this moment yes. years ago. That's yes. the, the, the challenge yes. isn't when every, yes. we all want to say, how do we take advantage of this moment as if suddenly we're going to be able to do some new kind of organizing that's going to build deeper relationships out of thin air. Like that's not going to happen, right? It takes, you're not going to suddenly wake up one day and say, oh, now's the time for us to get really good at mutual aid. It's like, this is what we needed to be doing for the last decades as part of our organizing so that in these moments we are prepared to take advantage. That's what we've seen in Puerto Rico. That's what we've seen in other places where people have been doing mutual aid and self-governance work. And this is what we're seeing around the world in terms of peasant agriculture. Like well-organized local peasant food webs that have been organizing around defending themselves against the impositions of industrial agriculture and biotech and have been practicing agroecology and sustainable peasant food webs are well positioned in this moment to use the relationships they have with each other and the relationships that they have um, in solidarity with, uh, with other communities to intervene in this moment to make sure people's food needs get met. Whereas you can't wake up one morning and say, oh, now we're going to self-organize. 
like the hardest thing to self-govern is actually the thing that has been enclosed most severe, you know, that has been the, the keys to the enclosure, which is finance. So it's wonderful to create a mutual aid fund. But as you said, like the level of trust and integrity and relationships that's required actually needed to be built through organizing before. So mm -hmm. this isn't to say you we shouldn't try and we shouldn't do it. I know the folks in Greensboro, North Carolina are doing it and lots of places are developing these networks. But the trust isn't just going to happen because we're in crisis. The trust is going to get built through the struggle of working together. And I think one thing that's also really important is for us to remember that the physical distancing shouldn't keep us from actually being visible to each other. Like there are ways for us to be out and visible and present in the world that's safe. Like we can actually be out being present in the world, doing things that are serving our communities safely. And we can encourage people to do that and to engage in that and to not think that we all should just be self-isolating. That That isn't what it means. And that isn't that isn't even healthy. Actually, a neighbor of mine who studies pandemics and works on these issues happens to live around the corner from me. And one of the things he said early on is loneliness will get people faster than the pandemic. And so people need to find ways to be social, to be out in the world, to engage with each other um, safely, but visibly. Um, because it's not just about us doing it, but it's also about people seeing us modeling what care and compassion looks like in this moment, whether that's in engaging in solidarity activity together, showing up for people. Like in the Bay Area, a comrade of mine is participating in helping organize resources from municipalities and even the federal government getting grants to buy produce from black and brown farmers in the Perry urban areas at market value from small farmers to put together food boxes through food justice and food sovereignty organizations to distribute for free to people whose food needs are not getting met, whose nutrition needs are not getting met in this moment. And this idea of you know, creating community-supported agriculture as a form of mutual aid by self-organizing farmers who have a need with communities who have a need, with organizations who have been organized around these larger questions of how we transform the food system, bringing all of those folks together and then being able to share with each other, do political education with each other, and to actually work on meeting people's needs in our communities because it makes us all more resilient, safer, healthier, um, and just better human beings. Like that's the possibility that this moment offers us. Um, but again, it's because these organizations have existed for a long time and have been doing this work that they are prepared to enter into an answer in this moment. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. it's not going to just suddenly happen because we're in this unique moment. It's going to happen because we prepared for this moment. Gopal's reflection that in order to have really taken advantage of our current moment, we would have needed to already have the deep relationships in place that we're building now hit me like a ton of bricks. I had a moment of feeling really sad about that lost opportunity. And then I thought of the quote from abolitionist and organizer Mariam Kaba that says, let this radicalize you rather than lead you to despair. 
The Bay Area food organizing and the resistance in Puerto Rico that Gopal references are both examples of what can be achieved when deep relationships, organizing, and community-controlled infrastructure are present before a crisis hits. Our mutual aid networks could build that kind of radical power and be prepared to transform our conditions in these moments of crisis and opportunity if they continue to grow on the basis of solidarity and not charity. I have some questions for those of you who are engaged in mutual aid networks. What has your experience been? How is your network confronting difficult race, class, and gender power dynamics as you work to meet real needs around you? And what are your ideas on how to build on the incredible outpouring of mutual aid we've seen in this pandemic in order to develop community-controlled infrastructure that meets our needs for the long term? Email us and let us know. In the next segment, Gopal and Elena discuss what it would take to become ungovernable and how we should be learning from and building solidarity with international struggles for liberation. I'm going to share a few definitions in advance for added context. Gopal references the Commerce Clause and the Supremacy Clause. Both of these are sections of the U.S. Constitution that explicitly grant power to the federal government and are the foundation that the U.S. legal system is built on. Gopal also mentions the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. In case folks aren't familiar, ALEC is a right-wing think tank that is a powerful lobbying force at the state and federal level. They're responsible for a lot of conservative model law templates that state legislators bring back to their respective states, and they've helped to coordinate legal strategy across states. So when Gopal draws the distinction between organizing against a city's local chamber of commerce versus fighting the American Legislative Exchange Council, he's highlighting the very different scales of struggle. If you want to learn more about any of these topics, we've included links in our show notes. And finally, a heads up that halfway through this segment, there's a shift in sound quality from Gopal because he switches microphones. Podcast recording in a pandemic is hard, y'all. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us. Back to Elena and Gopal. That reminded me of another question that I wanted to ask you, Gopal. And I guess I'll ask it just by stating my bias up front. You know, I'm just going to be Great. very open <laughs> about my bias, okay? You know, as, a, as an immigrant that worked in immigrant rights for, for years and got burnt out by that work, got super, super angry and frustrated by that work, I really came to see the federal government as the biggest waste of time. <laughs> okay. Like, do you want to see change happen? Just don't bother with the federal government. You know, they're completely and totally unaccountable. They don't care. They're in the pocket of corporations. And there's actually more control at the local level. And even when it came to immigrant rights, I felt that things like non-citizen voting rights, you know, had a better chance of giving my people a bit of voice than waiting for so-called comprehensive immigration reform to ever happen. That's right. So I gave up on the federal government a long, long time ago, Gopal. And, you know, right now we hear a lot about the federal government and all the craziness and the stimulus packages. Would you say that there's, at least for now, there's more hope in terms of advancing a new vision that is about people, about the planet, that is more caring, that is more equitable, that the better chances at the local level than going to the federal level. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, 
I do. I mean, I, I will just say first off that not only do I actually think that there's um, very little hope, I actually think the structure of governance in terms of federalism in the nation state and the United States in particular, it's actually structurally constrained from giving us what we need between the Commerce Clause, the Supremacy Clause, the complete control of the Supreme Court by corporate interests, all, all of it makes virtually impossible our ability to get what we want from the federal government. That does not mean that it is not an important landscape of struggle. It means it isn't so much about the idea that, from my perspective anyway, that we're going to get what we need through the existing structure of the federal government passing the law that will solve the problem is um, not how I see uh, the change happening. If you want to actually change anything at the federal level, instead of like going to DC and beating your head against the federal government, mm -hmm. we should actually be creating the conditions in our states and local communities that put pressure on the federal government to change. Like, what can we do locally that creates new conditions that make other things possible? And if we are going to intervene at the federal level, if we do see openings, what we should be fighting for is the kinds of interventions that will draw down resources, devolve resources to, to states and communities to implement the kinds of transformative activities that we want. Here's the thing. I don't actually think we get to win everything we want at the local level either. I'm more interested in interventions at the federal government that change the landscape of struggle to the local community organizing where we have greater access, greater influence, and greater power. So in that sense, like we could imagine a Green New Deal that solves everything because there's a federal law. We're never going to get that. We could also imagine a Green New Deal that's about a set of values that create the conditions by which resources can be drawn down to communities to implement local energy and climate action plans, local food system plans, in which those are in the form of, say, federal block grants. Um, and then... The struggle is, what does that look like in your community? And then you're fighting against the Chamber of Commerce, not the American Legislative Exchange Council, or, well, you're still fighting against the American Legislative Exchange Council, but you've changed the landscape of struggle to where we can, we're actually organized and we have greater power than at the federal level where corporations and the lobbyists win every time. Mm, so, I like that I, example. I, I was going I, I, to I, ask you. Yeah, I was I'm going just, to ask you, for example, but that was a good yeah. one. The Green New Deal, how that could look like. And yeah, thanks. And, and it's not this, I'm not against the Green New Deal by any stretch of the imagination. But what I'm interested in is us not thinking, not lying to ourselves that we're going to win some kind of federal policy that's going to solve our problems. What we can win potentially is um, mechanisms by which communities have the resources to address the problems at the local level. Energy democracy is not going to be a federal law. Energy democracy is going to be communities building local community energy cooperatives and fighting back against investor-owned utilities and retaking our energy infrastructure at the local level, at the community level. Right. And to do that, we need resources. And those resources are currently enclosed by corporations and the federal government. So we need to access those. But it's different than thinking that a federal law is going to make our lives better or, or solve the problem. Federal interventions could serve to actually put resources into communities that could win. 
when mm. better changes. And there's no guarantee that we win. There's never a guarantee that we win. That's the nature of organizing. But I think we have a better chance of winning if we devolve power down to the level of the community where we are everywhere all the time and where it's Mm -hmm. built on the strength of relationship, which is what you all have been doing at Neighbor to Neighbor, cultivating strong relationships in community so that then you can take advantage of those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the hope anyway. Thanks, Kopal. And thank you for that example, by the way, because when we were just, you were talking about changing the, the terrain of engagement, I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? But now I get it. So thank you so, so much. I still think it's always valuable to fight against the things that we don't like. Like, of course, so much of my work and my advocacy is about encouraging us to live into the vision of the world that we want, um, because I don't think we do enough of it. But that doesn't mean that we need to neglect the the importance of struggling against what is deeply problematic. And I think that there's one thing that we absolutely need to keep our eyes on in terms of how the federal government and international trade regimes and all of these things function is it's so much easier to be destructive than productive. And so we should actually be trying to intervene to stop those things from happening. Um, I say this about climate all the time. It's like the only reason to go to the UN climate negotiations isn't because we think we'll win what we need. It's because we need to stop them from moving the things that make it impossible for us to win what we need. And so it's like, yeah, we need to be there. We need to intervene. But that's because they're using it as a mechanism to expand corporate global tyranny. And to that end, we do need to intervene and people all over the world depend on it. In terms of what, from a local level, what international solidarity looks like to me, it's like we should be learning from the incredible brilliance and wisdom, even in the, in this very moment from Global South social movements, from um, international social movements like La Via Campesina and the MST in Brazil and the National Alliance of Peasant Movements in India and all over the world who are actually organizing now to meet people's immediate needs in really radical ways and facing an enormous amount of repression because of it. And we can learn lessons from that. We can amplify those stories and messages because that also provides them some support and cover. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to say that before we move on to the next No, that's thing. great. Yeah. And with your comment, you know, mine went to past experiences. You know, like I mentioned, I, I came up with this work in immigrant rights organizing. And for people like us, we have a more global view mm-hmm. of the movements of people, right? It's not bound to the nation state. And very quickly became very clear to me that while global capital flowed easily, across the borders, you know, mm-hmm. people didn't. Like immigration policy is seen as a domestic issue, right? And is completely blind to the actual global dynamics that are uh, propagated by empire, empire like the United States. I mean, like they too move in different tracks. So during my time, we tried to intervene in the free trade agreements with Central America because we knew that that was going to exacerbate migration flows. It was going to impoverish Central America even more. And it was just going to push people to leave our countries of origin. And it was impossible. I mean, if we had next to no power to fight around humane immigration policy, we had even less power in trying to intervene with the free trade agreements because there were global entities 
global entities that are not even accountable to uh, national governments. So there is a, a nefarious, evil web of global relationships in the hands of corporate capital that, you know, make it almost impossible, you know, at least for somebody like me to imagine how to build that new world through that route. So instead, I draw a lot of inspiration from my own people in El Salvador, right? Rather than go and and, and spend so much energy and resources in trying to fight this giant, what they do is that they organize locally to A, provide for themselves, and B, fight the bad guy in the backyard right there, right? Mm -hmm. So two examples are, uh, well, the two examples come from the same organized community. It is San Jose de las Flores in state of Chalatenango. We have states, they're not called states, they're called departments in the department of Chalatenango. And this community is actually beautifully organized. It's very cooperative in nature. There are community meals. There are community schools. There are community health clinics that are run by the people that live there, okay? And so when international mining company wanted to go and first prospect the land to see if there was, you know, stuff to mine there, I forget what they were looking for. That community organized like crazy and that community did not allow, it was years, they fought for years, but they ended up winning and kicking out the uh, international company. And one of the things that happened is that there was tremendous solidarity on people on this side, right in the United States, that helped them. Because when my country got threatened by the international mining company to be sued in international court because their rights superseded under the free trade agreements that the right of my own country to self-govern what we did here in the United States is that we discovered that this corporation had a, a subsidiary in the United States and they were trying to protect themselves, you know, with the United States Central America Trade Agreement. And that turned out to be a shell company, like a non-existent company. And so the case got thrown out of court. So the real wins for me have come from the local community and how very well they are organized to protect their own yeah, that's my experience. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things that that makes me think about is this and movement generation writes and talks about this a lot. What we feed grows, what we grow, we will love and what we love, we will protect. And that's actually a strategy. That's not just a, you know, a nice thing to think about. It's a strategy, a permanently organized self-governing community that meets its needs and learns to love the way that they can meet their needs is more equipped to protect itself than communities where what we feed is consumerism and individualism and a culture of self-interest. And so this is what we see from indigenous organizing, from peasant organizing, from community organizing in the global south, is people actually leaning into self-organizing to meet their needs, self-governing. And I think one of the things that we have to um, learn to do in the United States is we have to recognize that the only way that we're going to break the American empire is to actually become ungovernable. And to become ungovernable, we have to effectively self-govern. And that in and of itself makes us more resilient, more happy, better equipped to meet our needs, and 
it also is the only way to effectively resist the imposition of corporate will on our daily lives. And if we are not doing that, then we cannot be in solidarity with with people in the global south. Because the nature of international solidarity, for the most part out of the United States, is no different than the kind of charity calling itself mutual aid that we see from the upper valley to the lower valley. We think that because we're here and we have more and we're better that we can fight to protect or to defend or to help people in the global south. No, we need to be engaging in our own struggles in such a way that we have something at stake in their struggles as well and that they see us as engaged in shared struggle, not as some kind of charity activism. Yeah, no, I so love, I so love what you just said, uh, Gopal, because it gets me thinking about um, the fire that fuels the work, right? The, the 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 reason why we get up every morning and go back at it, right? Uh, despite the setbacks or the challenges, right? Like uh, the motivation, and it is about that which we love. I mean, at the end of the day, it is the it's right. land, family, and self, right? And uh, I know that in my case, if I can identify a thread, you know, in the work that I have uh, done in the world through the organizing, the activism, and the advocacy, is love. Because, you know, I am a person that um, grew up in a fairly chaotic family, you know, a lot of uh, issues there. Uh, I am an immigrant. I came here to, at the age of 13, and that was super disorienting for me. And it took a long while to find me, right? And uh, uh, the finding me was very related to reconnecting to the Salvadoran immigrant community. And when I started opening up to receiving all the love that I had been denied, right, uh, for years, trying to... um be seen and accepted in a fundamentally racist and xenophobic uh, society, uh, that was healing for me. That's that's where I got this idea that change was not just about the policy changes, right? That that was very, very important, but that the real transformative work for people like us, you know, people like me, black folk, brown folk, immigrants, women, trans, us, also on the margins, was the finding our way back to us, right? That we couldn't actually dream of uh, leading, owning, imagining, dreaming, thinking that we're deserving until we found our way back to us and to love that. Um, And I've been dedicated to that, you know, throughout my years, coming face to face with the way that we internalize the isms around us often are the biggest stumbling blocks, right, to our own liberation and ergo, the kind of transformative change that we deserve. So I think I'll end that uh, reflection by saying that while we still have a little, not a little bit, but a long ways to go out neighbor to neighbor to get to the place where we are practicing, you know, that kind of solidarity, we are actually seeing in more concrete ways how not only are we being left out, have been left out, but will continue to be left out 
if we don't find our way back to us, for us and by us. That's right. I I think that's the perfect landing. It makes me think about um, the importance of our, uh, not just our relationships to each other, but our relationships to our ancestries, to our histories, to our cultures, that we need to both remember our way forward by honoring our ancestries and at the same time, um, never forgetting the future, that everything we do now has implications far into the future. We tend to be um, conditioned in industrial society to, to look for an immediate consequence of every action in the second and to have a more expansive understanding of time and scale and um, power and history, I think is an important gift that those of us who have family, culture, community that isn't rooted just only in Western civilization can offer us as part of our resilience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we constantly live being measured and judged Mm -hmm. by something that is considered the norm, the normal and the right. When I'm like, who decided that? (laughs) Who's to say that time spending out on the porch with your neighbor talking and sharing a lemonade is not actually more worthwhile? Right, they're producing widgets that are extracting, you know, stuff that should stay on the earth. I mean, like, who says that? Who said that working nine to five is the only way? Right? Yeah. No, it it gets us back to where we started, which is like, you know, in the in the dominant economy, you know, a forest has no value until it's um, timber waiting to be felled, Um, and. You know, for the vast majority of us, for all of us, really, at uh, you know, whether it's one generation or three generations or five generations, come from peoples who saw forest as an invaluable part of the self, as opposed to timber waiting to be felled. And I think remembering back to that as a way of governing our way forward, I think is is, you know, is right and. We do need to constantly remind ourselves that that, that um, spending time with loved ones and having lemonade on the porch is is, uh, <laughs> is an important part of the management of home and the stewardship of the relationships of home, even if it doesn't have value in the extractive economy. love listening to Elena and Gopal talk. The way they talk about economy and politics and society and relationships, nature and our living world is all tied up together, reminds me of what Penn Lowe described in the second episode of this podcast. Recognizing all the spheres of our world as intrinsically linked, or different sides of one dice. My largest two takeaways from this episode are also all tied up together. The first being the importance of practicing new ways of being. This has come up across episodes, but I really appreciate Gopal's very grounded articulation. What we build on the day-to-day is what is heightened in times of crisis. This rings especially true to me when I think about transformative responses to harm and violence in our communities, and how necessary it is for all of us to be practicing better ways to respond to harm that don't cause more harm, and to learn how to respond to conflict with love and accountability instead of punishment. It's hard work, but if we don't shift into better ways of being in relationship with each other now, 
all the hate, the isms, all that nastiness is going to bubble up and be intensified in times of crisis, when the ways that we show up for each other matter most. The second thing I'm thinking about is how to build international solidarity into our day-to-day practice. My personal context is rooted deeply in the U.S. and in a very specific Northeast context at that. Gopal and Elena offer an important reminder that we have so much to learn from international resistance and the many, many ways people are organizing locally in other countries. Gopal brings the conversation full circle by relating these struggles to the dynamics in the Upper Valley and Lower Valley. Whether across national boundaries or just in our own neighborhoods, true solidarity is the practice of seeing and acting with the knowledge that our liberation is bound together. A challenge to myself and a challenge to you. How are you connecting your local struggles for self-determination to international struggles for the same? Is this integral to your work or the first time you're thinking about this? Let us know. Let's grow on this together. Economics for Emancipation is a project of the Center for Economic Democracy. This podcast is hosted by me, Amethyst Carey, and produced and edited by Libby Cohn with support from Liren Ma. Our sound is mixed by Michael Garth. This podcast features music from Masterpiece, who you can find linked in our show notes. The guests in this series are board members or fellows at the Center for Economic Democracy. To learn more about our work, visit us at www.economicdemocracy.us. And to tune into conversation about this podcast, hop on Twitter or Instagram with the tag hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number four.